as we open to Psalm 19, what you'll find is there's even uh, a, a, it, what I would say is like a summary of Psalm 119, which is a declaration of the glory of God's word and his law and his counsel for us. And so even in the way that you're holding this book or this Bible or finding it on Google or however you, your app might get you there, we're already living out the truth that we find in this particular psalm. A psalm that we realize is from David. Like the last few weeks, we've been walking through the psalms, and David has given us a couple of psalms in the last couple of weeks of lament, the language of crying out to God for help, out of distress, crying out to God for mercy, for deliverance, for sustenance, for rest, and for comfort. And we see here a different kind of a, song, a, a psalm. It's, it's more of a declaration about who God is and what God has done, specifically in the world and creation, but also in the way that he speaks to us such that we respond in a particular manner. My prayer then for this summer as we are digging through different psalms, as I've shared with you the last couple of weeks, is that the song of the summer for us wouldn't simply be something by, I don't know, Justin Bieber or whatever's cool right now, okay? My hope and prayer is that the song of the summer for us, the thing that when you look back on the summer of 2017, when you wake up and that thing is humming in your head, it's the truths of the, the deepest possible insights we see in the Psalms. Like that you would say like Psalm chapter 3, salvation belongs to the Lord. Thank God he delivers. That you would, like Psalm chapter 4, you would, you would say that your rest and your hope is in God and who he is and what he's done. And you would even say like Psalm chapter 5 we saw last week that our shelter, our refuge, the peace that we can experience in spite of trial, not, not in avoidance of trial, trials, but the peace that we can experience even in the midst of the worst possible circumstances is a gift of God. That's my prayer. That's, that's the song of the summer I hope is stuck in your head. That when the thing you can't get out of your head is the truth of who God is and what he's done for us. So I want to invite you now to Psalm chapter 19, beginning to let this, as we saw last week, we begin to ponder and we begin to meditate upon this. We begin to let it kind of marinate into us as we read it together, beginning in verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are, or, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing, the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? 
Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. My prayer is that these words become more than just ink on a page, but they become the actual words that we see here that are encouraged and exalted in this psalm. The words of God that begin to shape our words in the meditations of our own heart. This psalm we see of David probably isn't in the same context as the psalms from the last couple of weeks. Probably not so late that uh, it, it was written in a time when maybe we saw the last couple of weeks when his son, had, who had murdered his other son, was after him to literally take over his throne, had an army gathered against him. This is probably earlier than this. Probably before all of these things have happened. And yet we see him crying out to God for a type of sustenance. We've seen for the last couple of weeks, and I think we see the same theme throughout the entirety of the Psalms of this call to praise, this call to look to God for something that we can't find anywhere else. We find that our hope and our comfort is in, is in who God is and what God has done. We saw that in Psalm chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. You'll see echoes of this throughout the Psalms. That's why the Psalms call us to praise. We praise in different ways. We praise by crying out to God. We saw this last week. It's, it's right to praise God by taking our, our petitions and our desires to Him. He's not surprised by them. He's not taken off, you know, caught off guard by them. He's not taken aback by the things that we want or the things that we don't like. It's actually praise to look to God. So it's not, it, it, there's nothing in that in wrong in that we cry out or in that we have sorrow or in, or in that we have distress in this life. What's wrong is where we take those things. In your distress, in your sorrow, in your discomfort, where do you look for comfort? Where do you look to be satisfied? Where do you look for the pain to be taken away? And we find out that our pain is taken away. Our comfort is granted in who God is and what He's done. And who God is and what He's done is shown to us explicitly in the 19th Psalm here. And so for the first six verses, there's this outline of how great God is and how visible God is in creation. And then 7 through 11, we see this reflection on the way that God reveals himself specifically and specially through speaking. There's precepts. Apparently we have access to his testimony, not just, not just his fingerprints in his creation, but also his word explicitly to his people to where it lasts the three, the three final verses, 12, 13, and 14, are our response to who God is and what He's done. A cry, a prayer, a, a declaration, a petition to God. And here's what I think you'll find. So where I'm going to go for the duration of the time we get to today. I want you to find this good news in this. Is that a high view of God as a powerful creator and sustainer and a high view of God as a righteous judge allows us to look to Him as the one, typo, as the one who can declare us innocent and lead us toward his purpose. So a high view of who God is and what he's accomplished in his creation, and a high view of who God is and how he speaks to us and communicates to his people will allow you to look to him as a satisfier, as, as one who comforts, as one who, who grants every single desire in our innermost heart. 
We look to him and he satisfies us. He grants us his word that apparently we see has value even above that of treasure, literally that of gold, even much gold. Tastes sweeter than anything else David could think of. That's how good it is. That's what it's like to see God as high and lifted up as a creator, to see God as high and lifted up as one who speaks a word of righteousness, who is a judge over all things, who is the measure and the standard by which things are good or not good. And when we look to him, we are satisfied. We, we find a peace that comes from knowing this. So let's begin to walk through this. What you'll, I think you'll find there's kind of two parts here. There's, there's two parts. There's, in the first few verses, there's the world of God, the work of God. The second part you see, beginning in verse 7, we see expounded the word of God, the speech or the communication of God. And then we see our right, our right response. So theologians would call this, if, if you split the two uh, from verses 1 through 6 and verses 7 through 11, or uh, you, you'll, you'll kind of see this, what, what theologians would call a general revelation through creation and a special revelation through God speaking. There's a general revelation that's accessible to everyone who, who is able to even exist or sense anything in the world. And there's a special revelation that God speaks to his people. So let's begin to walk through the first few verses of this general, this general revelation. This is literally a Torah psalm. Torah, meaning the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So the very first word, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech there, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. That is, there's nothing that creation is saying that is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. There's something going on. There's something happening in creation. There's something under the surface of everything you see that points to a designer, a creator, and a sustainer. Now, I want to pause for a moment. This this psalm, and the majority of the Bible for that matter, isn't, isn't some sort of like uh, presuppositional apologetic for uh, the existence of God, or even, for that matter, of, of the way or how, how it is that God has brought everything into being. It doesn't do that. It rarely does that. In fact, the Bible does something here that, that I would push, and even in the, we've kind of discovered this in a fairly, like a postmodern society. Uh, one of the most compelling arguments you can make is condescension. Uh, one of the most compelling arguments you can make, and you hear this all the time, is just start a sentence. It's like start a sentence with, of course everyone knows that, and then fill in the blank with whatever you want to convince somebody. I mean, this, this kind of snobbery, this kind of condescension, it's everywhere, right? This, this is most of the things that people believe are actually preying upon their own idol and desire for acceptance and approval of others. So that whenever the consensus view is, well, everyone knows this, only a dummy would not know this, that, that has power over us. That, that preys upon our, our disjointed sense of self that it currently exists in our culture, like that disjointedness, you know the disjointedness, the, the kind of like, I'm kind of connected through social media and I'm friends, but I'm kind of not, and it leaves you like in this really weird middle ground where you're, you sort of feel good that you know a lot of people, but really lonely and dissatisfied because you don't really. That creates a, a weakness in us, a, a desire and a susceptibility for, for comfort. And we want approval. We want people to accept us and like us. So if someone comes along and says, 
everyone knows this, they're almost speaking with authority. The problem is, the question you want to ask is, what's your sacred text? Where are you getting this? What consensus are you drawing me into? The Bible does this as well. The Bible does this as well. In fact, Proverbs tells us that the fool, again, remember, this is not, this is not an apologetic for the belief in God or the belief in and God as creator and sustainer. It's not, a, it's not a careful defense of it, but instead it's an argument for the fruit of this. When you, when you get this, when your eyes are open to this, this is what happens. So the proverb says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. Did you get it? Like, only an idiot would not believe that there's a God. I want you to understand where that comes from. I want you to understand the consensus to which David is appealing. And I want you to get that. Again, it's, we're not going to like walk through like, oh, these are, the reason that, these are the reasons that you should or should not believe the Bible or that there is a God. Because if you're in this room and maybe you're not a believer, maybe you're not a Christian, I'm really glad you're here. And I want you to hear what it is that we believe. I want you to hear on its merit what it is that we, what we really posit every single time we get together. We say there is a God and God has done this thing. And so I'm glad you're here. I want you to begin to consider this because that may seem condescending and he may be appealing to a consensus that you don't agree with, but I want to go back a little bit to what David's referring to. When the proverb says that a fool says in his heart that there is no God, and when David says here that anyone can see that the heavens, the skies, the sun, all of creation pours out speech about who God is, he's appealing to a collective and a type of consensus experience that he's been in. And he's saying this, if you've been where I am, if you've been delivered from what I've been delivered from, if you've seen what I've seen, if you've watched the odds stacked against us and then seen miraculously God intervene and do something, you would see his fingerprints everywhere. You would see it everywhere. If you've experienced the kind of deliverance that I've experienced, then you too would look around you and you would see the glory of God being declared, get this, from the heavens, the sky above, every single day, every single night, the rhythm that exists in the world. There is no speech that's not heard. That is, there's nothing. There's, there's not a thing in the world that isn't saying who God is. And every single one of those voices can be heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, every single part, and their words go to the end of the world. In them he... That is, in the words of creation, God has created a tent for the sun. So what we find here is a reflection upon Genesis 1, 2, and 3. A reflection upon what the very first book of the Bible tells us about the beginning of things. And it tells us that this is what God is like. God's a creator. And when God does stuff, beginning in the beginning, he does it good. I know I should say well, there's an adverb needed there. But the word in Genesis 1 and 2 is good. And there's this refrain, God made this, it's good. Created the heavens and the earth, it's good, right? See where he's reflecting upon? And then he created this, it's good. Then this, and it's good. Day four, it's, and it's good. Day five, it's good. Day, day six, it's good. And there's all these things that he's created that are good. In fact, the one thing that was not good, he fixed immediately. The one thing that we were meant to, when we read Genesis 1 through 3, we go, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then he looks at the human who he's given this responsibility, and he says, whoa, it is not good that this man is alone and what, is, what, what does he do? He fixes the problem by granting woman. I love this. Every woman can literally say, I am God's gift to the world. Literally. Because the one, mis like the, the one like place where there was something missing, 
God remedied and made good by granting a woman. Everything's good. And you see in this psalm a reflection on this. God makes stuff, and it's not just that it's neat or cool. It's good. It's good for us. We see his mercy. We see that he's awesome. And I want you to consider the possibility that this is true. Like that thing that you love, that thing that you really think is really awesome, whose ideal was that? Who invented that? I see this even in the most natural sense, right? It's so cool that God made things like apples, right, in their most natural, in their most natural state. It's like, I'm going to eat this, and it's not because I just, I'm really hungry and I have to get something in my belly, but like, this is actually good. Who, invent, who invented this? That, whoa, this is actually, it's not just, it doesn't just keep me alive, but it grants me joy. That's who we see. That's, that's God. God grants us these kinds of things. And every time we experience them, I want to invite you to begin to consider this possibility. It's pointing to something good. It's pointing to a creator who designed it. All of it. The thing that people are falling over themselves to get. Approval. Acceptance. People want joy. People want pleasure. People want sex. People want satisfaction. People want, do not want to go hungry. Have you ever asked yourself, who invited, you know, like, who invented all of this? Whose idea were these things? And the psalmist invites us to consider that God is the one who invented them. And in them, you can see his fingerprints, his handiwork, that is his, his craftsmanship would probably be a better word for us to use. His skill level, the, the finished product of the world is actually something that points to who God is. It says, in them, like God has created in creation, this thing that puts a tent over the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. Okay, so he gives two pictures of the way that the sun seems to be working for our good. Not to destroy us and burn, it us, burn us up, like apparently it's doing on the planet Mercury, right? But apparently it like, gives us life, and it runs out like a bridegroom. This is sort of, you know, something you can relate to fairly easily. Um, I've done several weddings, um, and every single one of them, the, the, the groom is like nervous, excited. In fact, if he's not, I don't do the wedding, right? It's like, I'm not real excited about this. Well, okay, that's probably a good sign not to do this. So, so you can see this, like the guy who's, 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 who's like stumbling over his words and who can't quite get it out, maybe he's crying. This is, this is the picture. The guy who's excited, he sees his bride coming down and the veils pull over or, 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 or pull off of her, uh, away from her face, and he starts to weep. Have you seen this guy? I was this guy. That's what this is like. That's the anticipation and the rhythm that God has created. It's like a joy built into the system that every single day the sun comes up. Every single day the, the world keeps rotating on its axis. Every single day we find out even the sun, it's on its own trek. Over the course of millions of years, it's actually traveling our entire solar system, revolving around the sun, being drugged by the sun, is going around half a million miles an hour around the, Milky Way, around the Milky Way on a little course that takes about a couple million, or a few, several million years. So he says, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. The better word that we would probably use here is the word athlete, right? An athlete who runs, okay? Someone who is excited about running. This is not me. Okay, I'm a sprinter. I'm still kind of fast, sort of, when I need to be, if something's chasing me. Uh, but when people are like, let's go running for an extended period of time, uh, that's not me. But there are some people you know, and I'm not going to look up at this point, you know them because 
they prove this point. Uh, they're excited about running, and they're excited about telling you about running. And they'll invite you to go running, even though you have no desire to go running. But it says, like an athlete that runs its course with what? Did you catch that? Joy. I want you to see this. It's not just that we, we make an argument for something like intelligent design, that things work together and they're just not falling apart. A believer in God as creator actually is saying something much greater and even much better. Not only do things not fall apart, but they work in such a way that's almost like they're happy. It's almost like there's a joy. It's almost like these systems work together and they thrive. They're interdependent and they seem to love what they do. You breathe out carbon monoxide, which can kill you. And these plants around us breathe out oxygen, which give us life. All around us, even the things that seem gruesome, right? Like watch the Discovery Channel and the, you know, the predator kills the prey. And one day, I mean, anybody who's watching The Lion King knows this. One day that predator gets eaten by, him, by maybe one another predator and he becomes food for the grass, which its prey begins to eat. Did you get it? I'm not talking about some silly Disney story. I'm talking about a joyful system that reveals the goodness of God. As if we say here in the verse, verses 1 through 6, just watch this. Just sit back and watch. And you'll see something about God that I want you to be encouraged by. If you hear nothing else, I want you to know that the things that you see around you, the things that you currently enjoy, are actually, it's possible that God has put them there for your pleasure, for your good. God invented them for your joy. The first six verses, we see this meditation on the work of God, the world of God. Apparently, he's saying here that it's obvious. Once, you, once your eyes are open to the possibility that there is a God, then all of a sudden your eyes can't seem to be closed that God's work is everywhere. So let me kind of step aside for a minute here. If you're in this room and maybe you would say, and I don't really believe in this whole God in charge of everything. I don't really believe in uh, a sovereign God or a creating God. I'm not, I'm not really convinced that God's in, in, in charge of all this thing. I, I just kind of want to push on something here and point out something that I want to encourage you with. Um, in the same way that those in this room would believe this, believe that God is in charge, and yet at some moments, we struggle with doubt. And deep inside, we, like, we see this, we see his handiwork, and, and we believe this in the same way that in moments we struggle with doubt. I know that for most of you who, believe, who have nothing but doubt against this, that there is a God, that there's a God who has created, I know something about you because I've been where you are, I know something about you here. In a place where you don't want to admit, you struggle with belief. In the same way, we ought to resonate with one another here. I would stand here and say, I believe this. I see God working in my life. Like David, if you'd been where I've been, if God's delivered you from what God's delivered me from, you would look around and go, man, God is good. I can't believe I'm still alive. I can't believe I have breath. I get to eat. I get to breathe. I get to sleep. It's amazing. I don't deserve any of these things. I believe these things. But there are moments, and those of us who believe these things would have probably attest to this, there's moments where we kind of like, I have doubts. Things seem out of control. Things, things don't seem to be running in joy. They don't seem to be running like a, like a, a groom excited to be married. They don't seem to be jumping out like a, an athlete who wants to run a race. And we struggle with doubt. 
But for those of you in this room, maybe you've just come to this with skepticism and you're like, I don't believe this. I don't believe there's a God. I don't believe there's a creator. I want to kind of push on you here. This, this thing messes with you, doesn't it? Because in a place you don't want to admit, this stirs in you a painful feeling of belief. And you struggle with the thought that deep down, you might actually believe this. And you're afraid that this might be true. Well, I have encouragement for you. If you will consider the possibility, if you'll push through that fear, if you'll consider the possibility that there might actually be a God in charge of all these things, running all these things, the answer to all the questions that you can't quite answer might be a mysterious and amazing God. And I'll start at least by inviting you to this. Whether you believe in God or whether you don't believe in God, the one thing we can agree on, I hope, is that you're not God. It's one of the best places to start. Like, I don't believe in God. I do believe in God. Best place we can start. Do you believe you're God? Nope. Me neither. It's one of the best places to start. And that's why Proverbs says, only the fool says in his heart there is no God. Only a fool would say, I have all the answers to everything. You get this? Only a presumptuous and a foolish person would say they know the answers to everything. But a humble person, whether they believe in God or not, would look at things and go, there's some things here I can't quite understand. There are things here that I can't quite measure. And we begin thinking that at least we know I'm not God. If you start there, we've got something to build on. Because the next things that, w- that we believe is that not only does, has God revealed himself generally in, in a way that is across the expanse of creation, but he has revealed himself specifically and specially. We see in verse 7, this one I told you it's a Torah hymn or a Torah psalm. It says the law of the Lord. Literally the word law there is the word Torah so for all you medical people and military people, i got this really cool acronym I get to throw at you because I know you love acronyms. It's called the Tanakh, the T-N-K. And the Hebrew Old Testament is known as the T-N-K, the, the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, the Navi'im, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, the writings. And there are three categories of the Old Testament. There's the first five books of the, first five, first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the law of the Lord that sets the order and the, the sense of origin about all things. And then there's prophets and then there's writings about who God is and what he's done through his people. So remember that, the T and K. And that T in there is what this psalm is reflecting upon. Psalm 119 would be a good place to spend the rest of your week. In Psalm 119, we see an elaborated version of this like an expanded version. There is literally a chapter inside Psalm 119 after every single letter of the Hebrew alphabet reflecting on and celebrating God's word to his people. And we believe that's the scripture. We believe that when you tell the story of what God has done for you, it has some special meaning. It has an essential message to it that's transformative. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandments of the Lord is pure. The fear of the Lord is clean. The rules of the Lord are true. More to be desired are they than gold. So what we saw first is a picture of God's work in the world, but now we see God's word. And the second thing I want you to consider is the possibility that what we read on a regular basis, that when we open this book, it's pointing to something. It's pointing to something amazing. It's when you trust this word, it begins to shape things and it begins to be amazing. Now remember, this isn't supposed to be some sort of systematic argument to, to defend the accuracy of the Bible. It's, it's not what this psalm is. Instead, it's a reflection on what happens when you already embrace that and believe that. 
The way we talk about this in the life of our church, we quote uh, missiologist uh, Leslie Newbegin, and he talks about this. He says, one of his kind of quintessential quotes is that the church, that is the local church body, is the hermeneutic or the interpretation of the essential message of the Bible, that is the gospel. So when you want to know what the word of God is, you want to know how to interpret it, you look at God's people. You, you look at the way that the church, shaped by this essential message, the gospel, this good news of what God has done for us in Jesus, you look at them and you see this. And so here's why I'm not stopping to make some sort of like systematic argument for the existence of God or the validity of the Bible. I would just encourage you, sit back and watch. Watch. You want to know what this looks like? Look around you. Get to know some of the people in this room. See some of the things that God has brought them through. See the generosity that exists in this room. See the sacrificial service that exists in this room. See the growth in this room. People around you that maybe a year or a month or three years ago look completely different than they do now. How do you explain that? We believe that that is the way that we interpret what God has done for us. It shapes who we are. There are people around you being shaped by this. There's an abundance of humble and teachable people in this room who have blessed my soul. And so if you find these words, these six, these six declarations, like the law is this, the testimony is this, if you find those things difficult to believe, can I just invite you to like some, some maybe some, some skeptical patience? Would you just sit back and watch? See what happens. I dare you. Watch these people. Oh, they'll slip and fall just like anyone else. But watch how quickly they apologize. Watch how quick they are to humbly ask forgiveness. Watch it. Now, there may be some people who, like, slip through the cracks on that one, but those aren't the people I'm talking about. And the more you get to know the people in this room, I think you'll find there's this amazing thing that God's doing. There's an amazing thing that we celebrate on a regular basis. Does God love you just the way you are? Absolutely. But he loves you too much to keep you there. And he doesn't leave you there, and he takes you someplace amazing. How does he do it? We find here six different principles. The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandments of the Lord are pure. The fear of the Lord is clean, and the rules of the Lord are true. So this particular chapter, this Psalm 19, will probably hit you on a number of different spectrums. Well, probably, if, if, if you'll let it, this particular chapter will divide you into a couple of groups. And they might be helpful because you'll know what you're probably naturally good at and what you're naturally bad at and want to be humble about. Okay? So, for example, the first part of this, remember the part one through verse six, is about the work of God, the visibility of God in nature. And then the second part of this is the visibility of God in the scripture. And you're probably going to find yourself in one of two categories. Maybe there's a third category I'll, I'll mention, but you're one of, two, one of two categories. You're probably, if you're in this room, you're either like, I really love the outdoors and nature, or I really love the indoors and reading books. Probably. Now, there's some, another category of people that are, you're just lazy and you don't like either. Okay? Push that on you. That's Solomon speaking, Ecclesiastes and Proverbs speaking, not me. Okay? So, like, so there's, there's groups of you that when I say the heavens declare the handiwork of God, you nature-loving people, right, you, you, you know who you are. Like if, like if, you, if you own Chacos or Keens or whatever cool outdoor name brand there is, right, if you own like, like a tent that can, 
that, you know, that can be carried in a, like the, your back pocket or something. If you think hammocking is a word, like you, you love verses 1 through 6, right? You love, you're like, yes! I look around you and it's like worship. You see, I mean, you see a flower, you see a tree, you see an animal, you see nature, and you're like, you look at it, it's so beautiful, it's amazing. But here's the thing, I'm going to push back on you. You probably, maybe, you probably, since that's your tendency, and since like the, the canon of God's work in nature is easily accessible to you, I want to push you, you're probably not that good at sitting down and contemplating God's rules and principles over your life. But then on the other hand, there's some of you, when I tell you like the Bible, essentially in six different principles, the scripture is awesome. The law is good. Oh yeah, I love it when God tells me what to do. The testimony of the Lord. I love it when God tells me who he is. The precepts of the Lord. I love the principles that I can live by. If you find the fear of the Lord. Yes, I'm in awe of who God is. The rules of the Lord. I love the rules that God gives me. I, if you're in that camp and you're like, I love it. The, the, the Bible shapes me and changes me. Then you're probably, I mean, good for you. Like if you, you're excited about that thing. You, you, you have ambitions to learn like foreign languages, like the uh, Greek and Hebrew to understand the Bible even deeper. I love that about you. But I, I want to push on you just, you're probably very weak at seeing the beauty of God in creation. The scariest part that that might be true is you're probably really weak at seeing the beauty of God in the crowning achievement of his creation. People. And yet we see both here, don't we? We see the character and nature of God on display when you, walk, when you walk through a park and we see the character of God on display when you open these words and let them begin to shape you. And they seem to be both integral. They seem to be both essential. So I want to encourage you, if you find yourself on one side going, yeah, I love that. Because it might, not always, it might not always, but, but it might mean that you're probably fairly weak in the other area. As a result, I think we miss out on something. But notice what, what's happening here. There's a picture of the character of God in creation and in the scripture. There's something that happens when you open the Bible. We say this on a weekly basis. When you open it, it begins to open you. When you begin to expose what's in the Bible, it begins to expose you. And so I would ask you, can you with confidence say these kinds of things? You see, we see some words defined here that are helpful for us. We saw this in the book of Jonah. The concept of sin was defined well without the word of sin, the word sin even being used. But one of the concepts we see that's throughout the scripture defined here, especially in these six principles, is the concept of submission. And we don't like that word. We don't like submission at all. In fact, we like rebellion. We like independence. We like revolution. We don't like submission. We don't like laying down our will for anything other, or we don't like laying our, down our will for anything. I, I joke about this all the time. One of the founding, you know, one of the founding documents of Patrick Henry's, one of my favorite, favorite quotes is, you know, Patrick Henry, when, when the United States, uh, like, declared its independence uh, against, against the, the, uh, the British Empire, what does Patrick Henry say? Give me liberty or give me death. And, and in a sense, is saying, I would rather die than do what you tell me to do. I'd rather be free from your authority your tyranny is the word. Uh, I would rather be free from your authority. Otherwise, just let me die. And that's kind of the current running through most post-enlightenment people. Most Western culture. We're like, don't tell me what to do. I tell me what to do. 
But there, just so you don't miss it, just so you don't miss it, the thing that the, the Old Testament does to make sure that we're not too thick or dense, it repeats stuff, it says it very slowly, and it, and it says, no, seriously, I'm going to say this again. And for those of us who might say, no, I, I do whatever I want to do, what does it say here? No, it's the law of the Lord that's perfect. It's the thing that revives your soul. It's the thing that revives your soul. You think reviving your soul is rebelling or standing out in a crowd. Go find yourself, seek yourself, express yourself, right? Assert yourself. And what we find here is that, no, evidently, it's finding your place under God's law that revives your soul. Maybe you're still like, give me liberty, give me death. Okay, second time. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple. You find wisdom in your simple mind by listening to who God is and what he's done. In case it's not enough, he keeps repeating it. It's the precepts, the principles, the, the guidelines that God has created into the world. Those are the things that are right. They rejoice the heart. It's the commandments of the Lord that are pure. They enlighten the eyes. That's so powerful. Our culture says enlightenment comes from rebelling against conformity stepping out and doing our own thing, expressing, asserting ourselves. And yet we find here, evidently there's something else going on here. It's actually when God commands us in its purest and righteous form, that's where we find enlightenment. The fear of the Lord, the awe, the the sense that we are small in light of God is what's sure It endures forever, and then it says the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So here's what we find. Romans 1 tells us that the work of God is enough. It's enough to condemn us. Romans 1 puts it this way. Let me kind of try to wrap these things together. Romans 1 verse 18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His, in, in his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since what? The creation of the world in the things that have been made. Did you get that? Romans 1's making a call back to Psalm 19 and Psalm 119. Whatever you want to know about God, you can begin to know by looking at the world. The things we want to perceive about God, we can see in the way that he's created a joyful and rejoicing kind of harmony in creation. So much so, it says that these people who have traded this truth, suppressed this truth, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And you hear another call back to Psalm 19. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Just as Romans 1 tells us, and just as Psalm 19 alludes to, the work of God and the visibility of God's character on display in creation is enough to condemn every single person who suppresses the truth. But we see verse 7 through 11, something amazing. Moreover, verse 11 says, By them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. The love of God's word, that is the word of God, is enough to save every person who believes it. And so you have two different principles, the God showing himself in the world and God showing himself in the word. And, and, and there's another set of, uh, another spectrum, not just like, you know, nature-loving people and, and like, you know, book-loving people, not that, again, 
There's a spectrum here. There's another spectrum. There's a spectrum of, I think here, the experience of things and then the guide of things. Notice, he says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. So he asks a question that ought to cause us to ponder in response to who God is and what he's done in creation, in response to what the scripture teaches about who God is and how he's revealed himself to his people. We ask this question in verse 12, who can discern his errors? That's such a great question to even think on. What person can see all of their flaws? What person is aware of all their weaknesses? What person is aware of all the things wrong with him or her? And he says, there's two different things that we pray for. Verse 12, declare me innocent from hidden faults. So God, grant me a declaration of righteousness or innocence from the things that I don't know. He's humbly admitting, sometimes there's things about me that are wrong and I don't even know about it. Can you resonate with this? Every time someone tells me I'm doing something wrong, I'm always shocked by it. It's always a surprise. Hey, Jonathan, that's wrong. That was a mistake. Every single time. I mean, you would think like, oh, I'm used to this. No, every single time I'm like, no, that cannot be. Are you this person? Think of it this way. The way to measure this, ask someone later, later today, maybe someone you know very closely. Hey, ask them, say, how approachable am I to hearing about my own mistakes? Just ask them. See what happens. Good luck. But what you'll find is that this is in all all of us, right? There's like, who can really tell what's wrong? He says, declare me innocent from my hidden faults. Every time I'm shocked by my own sin or failure, God, you're going to have to declare me righteous because I can't possibly bring all of these to the light. There's too many to count. And then the second thing, he says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. So the first category of sins in verse 12 are the sins you don't know about. But he says presumptuous sins, or, or maybe the, the, in verse 13, the better way to say this is like, like willful disobedience. Like I knew that was wrong, and I did it anyway. You ever been there? Like I made a decision that was poor. It had nothing to do with, I wasn't rationally thinking, like what are the consequences of my actions? You're just like, I'm going to do this anyway. You've done that? He gives a second category there. He's like, keep your servant also from presumptuous sins, not let them not have dominion over me. So there's two different things going on here. There are the things that we don't even know about that, and we need God to forgive us for and expose for us because there's no way that we could discern our own errors. And then the second thing is, God, you're going to have to keep me from willing against you. God, you're going to have to keep me from rebelling against your word and your will for me because given the option, not only will I do the things wrong that I don't know about, but even when I know it's wrong, I'll do it anyway. And he says, there's two different things I need. I need God for you to heal me in the places I don't know about. And I need you to guide me and keep me in the places that I do. And those two things, the, the places where we, where we seem to run from God, the, this idea that we just do whatever we want and we don't really care, that's something we call license. You'll see the New Testament refer to it as licentiousness. But then the idea that we can keep ourselves from our own willful sins, what's called legalism and there's an interesting thing going on here you see people who fall into license in that first category they take pleasure in being innocent like they love when i say god forgives you they get excited like yes 
But then I say, now obey and follow Jesus. Lay down your will and life. Take up your own cross and follow him. They go, whoa, I don't know about that. Can I just hang out here where God forgives me for everything? And so people who, who fall into license, the people who would, who would struggle with the second half of this, verse 13, those people, license takes pleasure. The person who, who, who like appeals to license, they take pleasure in being innocent, but not in avoiding sin. You know this person? Right? You're like, hey, you did that thing that was wrong. And they're like, I'm forgiven. They're like, okay, yes, but like, there needs to be humility and penitence and there needs to be repentance and you need to turn from this. You need to seek help. You need to ask people to come alongside you to point out the errors that you can't currently see. Those blind spots exist because you are a fallen human. But on the other hand, there's people who would fall into legalism and they, they take pleasure in avoiding sin and not simply being declared innocent by God. They want to do it themselves. And notice the good news for both of them. The only hope for either of them is what? God will have to declare me innocent and God will have to keep my footsteps pure. God alone is the righteous judge who can say you are innocent, not you. But God alone can keep you from sin, not you. And there's something amazing we find out that our only hope is the work of Christ to make us righteous and the work of the Holy Spirit to keep us from sin. Christ offers both innocence and deliverance. Now here's another spectrum one of you will fall on. Some of you, like, you're like, I'm going to keep doing, in your heart you know, like you're fatalistic. You've found ways to justify your sin. you found ways to explain why you keep sinning. And you keep appealing to the grace of God. Oh, he keeps forgiving me, he keeps forgiving me. And I want to give you a, a, a good thing. God doesn't just save you and declare you righteous. He gives you a path and keeps you on it. In fact, the only way you'll stay on it is if he does so. But for the rest of us, maybe there's, maybe if you're more legalistic and you really take pride in the fact that you got your life under control and you can do this right and you experience a great deal of self-righteousness when you're succeeding and an immense amount of shame when you're failing and you're either judging everyone else and saying how, be- how much better you are than them when you're succeeding or you're looking at everyone else and you can't, you can't even believe you have to hide your face when you're failing. And I have good news for you. God declares you righteous. Your only hope for this isn't that you could earn it, but God does it for you. God declares us righteous in Christ, but he also protects our footsteps in Christ. He not only delivers us from sin, but he delivers us in obedience. There's something going on here I want you to see. The prayer, keep back your servant from even the willful sins. Then, notice, then I shall be blameless. Then I shall be innocent of great transgression. Then and only then. You see, when we have a high view of God as a creator and a high view of God as someone who is with us and for us and speaks law and guidance for us so much that we actually start to enjoy it, we actually start to realize that his will for us is better than our will for ourselves, then it allows us to look to God for something that we can't find in ourselves. Innocence and purity, but also deliverance, guidance. And then, then and only then when we look to him are we blameless, innocent, See, we need someone to come along and declare us innocent. And we need someone to keep us from stumbling. We need someone who can look at us. And even in the errors that we don't know exist, even in the places we don't know we're failing, even in the places right now that we're we're, we're keeping a secret because we don't really want to know that that place is in our hearts turned against God, we need someone who can come in those places and still declare us righteous because we don't have the ability to see it ourselves. 
You can't see your blind spot. We need someone to come along and declare us righteous even in our blind spots. But we need someone who can come along and guide us towards righteousness because we can't do this. Paul tells us, I keep wanting to not sin, but then I actually do want to sin. I keep doing it. I want to do what's right, but I just willfully go against it. We need someone who can heal us and guide us, and that one is Jesus. Jesus is the one. He's the perfect creation of God made visible for us. He's the perfect, John 1 tells us, word of God made visible to us, such that when we see the might of God in his perfect creation, we long for it to be fulfilled and restored in Christ the eternally begotten Jesus. We look to him and we say, this one is the perfect one. And when we look for the word of God to speak a word over us, not a word of condemnation or a word of judgment, but a word of mercy, we look to who? Jesus. We find it. We find the perfection of God and the perfection of his word all in Jesus. He's the one. He's the one. And it's only by him that we can look to God and say these words in verse 14. Now, since I know I can only be found righteous and blameless in God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Did you hear it? Did you hear the sure footing? Did you hear the stable path? The source of our right thinking, right speaking, Right meditating is what? The sure path, the rock. Did you hear it? The forgiveness, the restoration as sons and daughters of the Most High God. He's also our Redeemer. He's the one who declares us innocent. He's the one who restores us to the family. Even in the places where we would willfully run from God, He is the rock and He I think I've told this, one of my mentors puts it this way. It's like the, the one good thing about hitting rock bottom is that you find out there is a rock at the bottom. And that rock is Jesus for us. He is the one. He is the sure footing for our souls. He is the one who restores us to family by which we can look at God and not see a judge who wants to kill us, but we see a father who wants to redeem us. Oh, thank Jesus that he is that one. Thank Jesus that he saves us from our own desire to be innocent but still walk in sin. And he gives us the ability to walk away from sin piece by piece because now we've been adopted as sons and daughters of God. So here's the way I'll end and I'll just close this in prayers. We'll let this prayer shape the way that we pray. Does this describe you? Is this the kind of prayer you could write? A prayer that says, God, you're so good, I see your work everywhere. God, you're so faithful, you speak words of truth to me everywhere. God, you're so merciful, I can find innocence in you, righteousness in you, and sure footing in you. Can you pray this prayer? Because I believe in Christ, we're led to cry out these things, the truth of God's perfection in his world and in his word. And this invitation to let even the meditations of the deepest of our hearts, because some of us like to just not say bad things. Did you catch that? Like, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, you're like, I'm, I'm not going to say anything, but inside I'm just going to stew. That's, maybe that's you. You're like, I'm going to pretend like everything's okay. I'm going to forgive them to their face, but I'm just going to be angry. Oh, friend, in Jesus Christ, there's a deep and abiding peace, knowing that he is our rock and our redeemer that shapes not only the words that come out of our mouth, but the deepest desires and meditations of our heart. Thank God that these prayers are for us answered in Jesus.
Let's pray these prayers together then.